Hello, welcome to the Quest podcast. This is season two, episode eight, and the third part of the Young mini series. Our subject today will be the later chapters of MDR. In the later chapters, he lets his guard down, as he was always inclined to do when he was confident and in his stride. Also, he was at the end of his life with nothing to lose. He speaks of UFOs, life after death, his near-death experiences with fascinating and rich detail. In chapter 10, in Visions, he writes, At the beginning of 1944, I broke my foot, and this misadventure was followed by a heart attack. In a state of unconsciousness, I experienced deliriums and visions, which must have begun when I hung on the edge of death and was being given oxygen and camphor injections. The images were so tremendous that I myself concluded that I was close to death. My nurse afterwards told me it was as if you were surrounded by a bright glow. That was a phenomenon she had sometimes observed in the dying, she added. I had reached the outermost limit and do not know whether I was in dream or in ecstasy. At any rate, extremely strange things began to happen to me. It seemed to me that I was high up in space, far below I saw the globe of the earth, bathed in a gloriously blue light. I saw the deep blue sea and the continents. Far below my feet lay Ceylon, and in the distance ahead of me, the subcontinent of India. My field of vision did not include the whole earth, and its outlines shone with a silvery gleam through that wonderful blue light. In many places the globe seemed coloured or spotted dark green, like oxidised silver. Far away to the left lay a broad expanse, the reddish-yellow desert of Arabia, and it was as though the silver of the earth had there assumed a reddish-gold hue. Then came the Red Sea, and far, far back, as if in the upper left of the map, I could just make out a bit of the Mediterranean. My gaze was directed chiefly towards that. Everything else appeared indistinct. I could also see the snow-covered Himalayas, but in that direction it was foggy or cloudy. I did not look to the right at all. I knew that I was at the point of departing from the earth. Later I discovered how high in space one would have to be to have so extensive a view, approximately a thousand miles. The sight of the earth from this height was the most glorious thing I had ever seen. After contemplating it for a while, I turned round. I had been standing with my back to the Indian Ocean, as it were, and my face to the north. Then it seemed to me that I had made a turn to the south. Something new entered my field of vision. A short distance away, I saw in space a tremendous dark block of stone like a meteorite. It was about the size of my house, or even bigger. It was floating in space, and I myself was floating in space. I had seen similar stones on the coast of the Gulf of Bengal. There were blocks of tawny granite, and some of them had been hollowed out into temples. My stone was one such gigantic dark block, An entrance led into a small antechamber. To the right of the entrance, a black Hindu sat silently 
in lotus posture upon a stone bench. He wore a white gown, and I knew that he expected me. Two steps led up to this antechamber, and inside on the left was the gate to the temple. Innumerable tiny niches, each with a saucer-like concavity, filled with coconut oil and small burning wicks, surrounded the door with a wreath of bright flames. I had once actually seen this when I visited the temple of the Holy Tooth at Kandy in Ceylon. The gate had been framed by several rows of burning oil lamps. As I approached the steps leading up to the entrance into the rock, a strange thing happened. I had the feeling that everything was being sloughed away. Everything I aimed at or wished for or thought, the whole phantasmagoria of earthly existence, fell away or was stripped from me. An extremely painful process. Nevertheless, something remained. It was as if I now carried along with me everything I had ever experienced or done. Everything that had happened around me. I might also say it was with me and I was it. I consisted of all that, so to speak. I consisted of my own history. And I felt with great certainty, this is what I am. I am this bundle of what has been and what has been accomplished. This experience gave me a feeling of extreme poverty, but at the same time of great fullness. There was no longer anything I wanted or desired. I existed in an objective form. I was what I had been and lived. At first the sense of annihilation predominated, of having been stripped or pillaged, but suddenly that became of no consequence. Everything seemed to be past. What remained was a fait accompli, without any reference back to what had been. There was no longer any regret that something had dropped away or been taken away. On the contrary, I had everything that I was, and that was everything. In his delirium as he lay in bed, Young had a number of unusual visions and insights. These included that a doctor had come up to the meteorite where he was about to leave the earth and urged him to return to the earth, which Young did most reluctantly. But Young strongly intuited that the doctor would die in his place. Young tells us that in fact this was the case, for on his recovery the doctor did die. During the day, as he lay in recovery, he was depressed. He could not rid himself of the impression that this life is a segment of existence which is enacted in a three-dimensional box-like universe especially set up for it. But at night when the rest of the world went to sleep he had visions of paradise, the garden of pomegranates, the marriage of Malchoth and Tifereth and he was that sacred marriage or Hieros Gamus, that union of opposites, that wholeness. Jung describes these visions as part of his individuation process and psychologically as experiences of wholeness and completion. These seem quite close to Hinduism, where Maya is often translated as illusion, since our minds construct a subjective experience, which we then interpret as reality. In Hinduism it is avidya, or ignorance of one's true self, that leads to ego-consciousness of the body and the phenomenal world. This grounds one in karma or desire, and the perpetual chain of karma 
and reincarnation. Through egotism and desire, one creates the causes for future becoming. Jung finished this brief and remarkable chapter with reference to his feelings of objectivity, as if he had broken through to some objective truth beyond illusion. In chapter 11, Life After Death, Jung tells us that though he thinks of himself as a scientist, he is open to the paranormal and thinks there is no reason why it should not be investigated scientifically. The fact that it may defy our reason and common sense does not put him off, but rather intrigues him. From analysing, for example, many thousands of dreams and understanding the world's mythologies, he is very aware that the unconscious represents death and the afterlife in a very different way to that of the rational side. There is a natural tendency of the unconscious to believe in the afterlife and rebirth. Death can be terrifying from the point of view of the ego, yet a mysterium conjunctionis, that is a sacred union of opposites, a joyful event from the point of view of the psyche as a whole. Jung thinks of the unconscious as an interconnected collective field. He feels that the dead do not advance in their consciousness after death, but their consciousness and knowledge stop at the moment of death. They are thus very dependent on the living, who are still advancing in consciousness, and they are very anxious to learn from them. Jung felt that the dead were in contact with him and required answers from him. Jung also gives some thoughts on reincarnation and karma, clearly recognising a different approach in the East to that of the Western Christian conception. The East believes in endless cycles, while the Christian believes in some static end state, heaven. He considers that life after death would be essentially the further existence of the psyche rather than the body. The idea of a very comfortable heaven seems rather infantile. Jung suspects that suffering will continue in the afterlife and there will be a state of opposites. Then certain souls will be destined to plunge back into human existence, that is, be reborn. Jung then recalls visions and dreams that resemble the dilemma he had at the start of his life, when he sat on the stone and did not know whether he was Carl Jung or the stone. He tells a dream of UFOs and feeling that these were not projections of human consciousness, a thesis he had brilliantly argued in one of his papers, but rather that he himself was a projection of the UFO. Similarly, he had a dream of entering a church and seeing himself in meditation and realising, aha, so he is the one who is meditating me. He has the dream and I am it. I knew that when he awakened, I would no longer be. The common sense view says that consciousness is real and the unconscious unreal. But in the above idea, Jung, in an argument very close to that of Hinduism and Buddhism, reverses the logic. And it is now the unconscious that is the reality, and this consciousness is a dream, illusion, or a created state out of some deeper reality. Jung argues for the acceptance of our limitations and uniqueness, and not to get carried away by narcissistic grandeur. At the same time, he argues that, despite this awareness of limitation, if we have a sense of being connected to the infinite, then we have real meaning and significance. Here it seems Jung has an ethical view that could be placed in any religion. Finally, he argues that the purpose of human existence is the expansion of consciousness. Quote, 
as far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. It may even be assumed that just as the unconscious affects us, so the increase in our consciousness affects the unconscious. Unquote. In chapter 12, Late Thoughts, Young is writing after the Second World War. He felt very strongly that most people were not equipped to deal with evil. He felt that the Christian myth needed reworking, since it was misleadingly rooted in the doctrine of privatio boni, that is, that evil was the privation or absence of good. Young, on the contrary, regarded evil as a real force in its own right. You will have gathered by now that, for Young, myths were central to the human psyche and health. He felt that living in an age where the myths of Christianity were dying left mankind completely exposed and unprotected. He tried to reinterpret many of the world's myths, including those of Christianity, so that they could become alive again and meaning could be restored. He argues that God evolves, transforms over time, and is not static. Indeed, there is dissension in heaven on the other side of consciousness, that is, in the unconscious. Examples are as follows. Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. Lucifer and some angels are cast out from heaven. The incarnation of God in human form, Jesus, takes place. He says, Thus the unconscious wholeness penetrated into the psychic realm of inner experience, and man was made aware of all that entered his true configuration. A decisive step for mankind and the Creator, who now cast off his dark qualities. He argues that the Christian myth was intact for the first millennium AD, but that after around the 1100s AD, it began to change, and that by the end of the second millennium, it had been severely damaged, that is, in our own times. For Jung, the disintegration of myths and their non-replacement by something equally positive was a catastrophe. Nazism replaced Christian religious thought with a completely new mythology of its own that was murderously hostile to Christianity. Stalinism was not far behind in this effort. Jung argued that myths, the world of religions and symbols were primary. It was a disturbance in these that was causing the wars and the outbreak of evil. Jung's method was to regard good and evil as part of a continuum instead of being opposites. Many religions, Christianity included, split these opposites into two radically different halves, God and Satan, for example. Thus, a radical division takes place in the Godhead, who is supposedly all good, and evil is cast out. This reflects a movement in consciousness occurring around the time of Christ, but also to be seen in other parts of the world, where a major shift towards ideas of a transcendental God emerged. This is especially notable in the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. It becomes no longer possible, in Jung's view, to find external rationale, for example in religions, for what is good and evil. But this becomes a personal judgment, and this is far more difficult. It becomes a question of self-knowledge, and therefore recognising the evil within oneself. Of great importance to Jungian psychology is the question of the shadow, the dark part of each person's psyche, which has to be acknowledged and integrated. 
evil is no longer a mere absence of the good, but an active force of its own. He proposes that Christian mythology splits good and evil, and therefore the wholeness of the psyche, both dark and light, was denied. Christianity is therefore really a dualism, since it splits good and evil. He also suggests that the phenomena of UFOs was a psychic projection of wholeness, projected into the heavens, where mankind was searching for something whole, complete and transcendent. The God image is, quote, always a projection of the inner experience, unquote. Young proposes that the emergence of human consciousness, by means of millions of years of evolution, has been a necessary development by the Creator to create a consciousness capable, as it were, of confirming the Creator. This is a meaningful and purposive development out of the unconscious, so as to create consciousness to give objective existence back to the unconscious, the creative life force behind this evolution. He sees this development of meaning of consciousness as the inner secret of evolution and God's creation. Consciousness has therefore the task of unifying the opposites and creating harmony and unity, since nature is dominated by opposites. However, he admits that we have no evidence that human consciousness will not become extinct, like most of biological evolution. In fact, by the end of his life, Jung was quite dark and pessimistic about the chances of human civilization continuing. In his visions, he sees vast tracts of the earth as being destroyed, but not the whole earth, thank God, he says. These visions were as strong and powerful as those he had in 1913 before the First World War. Meaning is the essence of the life force. Quote, Meaning makes a great many things endurable, perhaps everything. Unquote. This meaning does not come from our reason, ego or consciousness. It seems ultimately to come from without or from the unconscious, like in dreams and myths or the word of God. Young next meditates on the significance of the secret, that part of the individual that has to be guarded, the route to individuation. Individuation is the path of the wholeness of the psyche, the search for the self, its integrative centre that is the source of all. He contrasts it with the collective organisations and structures, which are a refuge for individuals, and by this he would include any collective system, perhaps the family, religion, identity of race, nation or tribe. While these may be totally necessary for most human beings, Jung advocates the more lonely and individual path, whereby individuals struggle for their own clarity and development. In the early chapters of MDR, Jung frequently refers to his secrets, his dreams or his mannequin, for example, by which he held himself together in difficult times. Clearly, this section of the book is about himself. After all, the book is an autobiography. But it is also about everyone who struggles for individual development. The secret is the soul, that which wants to be uniquely realised in each individual. Jung regards the soul as a daemon, a force that obliges us or others to self-realisation. He sees this process as a struggle of opposites. Consciousness is a secondary phenomenon to the unconscious. It is late in evolution, out of millions of years of unconsciousness. The psyche evolved out of an animal state. It is not a clean slate or a tabula rasa, but has an immense inheritance, possessed by instincts, archetypes 
and a priori foundations of the higher functions. This latter formulation, a priori, refers to Jung's acceptance of Kant's reasoning that human rationality, conceptions of space, time and causality, are pre-structured in the psyche. The ego is based on these a priori foundations, which consist of polarities, the opposites that dominate the psyche, love and hate, selfishness and altruism, sexuality and civilization, consciousness and the unconscious, resentment and forgiveness, and so on. We cannot go beyond the psyche. We are in it all the time, see through it, feel through it, we are it. Yet as much as Jung advocates this view, he suggests that ultimately there may be a psychoid base to the psyche, as if it may be related to a different form of being. He does not elaborate, but he may here be thinking of the paranormal, something behind the veil where there is an uncomprehended absolute object, i.e. God. The ego and its consciousness are vital and important to the whole of our evolutionary development, but Jung is quite sure that behind it lies a greater reality, quote, the autonomy and numinosity of archetypal processes, unquote. He is aware that there is a mighty and unfathomable base of our existence. And Jung ends this most unusual and confessional chapter with contemplation of eros and of love, higher love. He believes God is love and this love has created the world and ourselves. I find very moving the last paragraphs of the book, especially after an extraordinary life and with so much accomplishment. For someone who found the archetype of the self for contemporary humanity, the following lines seem magnificent and tragic, but such was the depth of this extraordinary person that he could reveal this without pretense. He writes, The daemon of creativity has ruthlessly had its way with me. The ordinary undertakings I planned usually had the worst of it, though not always and not everywhere. By way of compensation, I think I am conservative to the bone. I fill my pipe from my grandfather's tobacco jar. I am satisfied with the course my life has taken. It has been bountiful and has given me a great deal. How could I have ever expected so much? Nothing but unexpected things kept happening to me. Much might have been different if I myself had been different. But it was as it had to be for all came about because I am as I am. Many things worked out as I planned them to, but that did not always prove of benefit to me. But almost everything developed naturally and by destiny. I regret many follies which sprang from my obstinacy, but without that trait I would have not reached my goal. And so I am disappointed and not disappointed. I am disappointed with people and disappointed with myself. I have learnt amazing things from people and have accomplished more than I expected of myself. I cannot form any final judgment because the phenomena of life and the phenomena of man are too vast. The older I have become, the less I have understood or had insight into or known about myself. I am astonished, disappointed, pleased with myself. I am distressed, depressed, rapturous. I am all these things at once and cannot add up the sum. 
I am incapable of determining ultimate worth or worthlessness. I have no judgment about myself and my life. There is nothing I am quite sure about. I have no definite convictions, not about anything really. I know only that I was born and exist, and it seems to me that I have been carried along. I exist on the foundation of something I do not know. In spite of all uncertainties, I feel a solidity underlying all existence and a continuity in my mode of being. The world into which we are born is brutal and cruel, and at the same time of divine beauty. Which element we think outweighs the other, whether meaninglessness or meaning, is a matter of temperament. Probably, as in all metaphysical questions, both are true. Life is or has meaning and meaninglessness. I cherish the anxious hope that meaning will preponderate and win the battle. When Lao Tzu says, All are clear, I alone am clouded. He is expressing what I now feel in advanced old age. Lao Tzu is the example of a man with superior insight, who has seen and experienced worth and worthlessness, and who at the end of his life desires to return to his own being, into the eternal, unknowable meaning. The archetype of the old man who has seen enough is eternally true. At every level of intelligence this type appears, and its lineaments are always the same, whether it be an old peasant or a great philosopher like Lao Tzu. This is old age and a limitation. Yet there is so much that fills me, plants, animals, clouds, day and night, and the eternal in man. The more uncertain I have felt about myself, the more there has grown up in me a feeling of kinship with all things. In fact, it seems to me as if that alienation, which so long separated me from the world, has become transferred into my own inner world, and has revealed to me an unexpected unfamiliarity with myself. Those were Jung's final words in MDR. All great visionaries have a strong identification of their personal journeys with the crisis of the collective. Their own crises originated in their societies, and their personal vision they offer back to the collective to facilitate its rebirth. Young's criticisms of Western civilization have entered deeply into the 20th and 21st century. For example, that the West has lost and needs to recover its soul, that it has neglected and suppressed the feminine and needs to reincorporate it, that the world's mythologies are not dead past, but an incredibly rich source of wisdom, that the super-rationalism of our societies creates an immense imbalance in the psyche. That fulfilment comes from self-realisation. That the unconscious is essential for our sense of identity and meaning. That the dream world offers us guidance and moral perspective. That there is an autonomous archetypal growth function in our psyche which pushes us towards self-development and eventually wholeness. That the psyche is a self-balancing system that the world's religions can be brought to life again and understood symbolically, that there is purpose to the evolution of consciousness. It is no accident, but meant to be here. It is potentiated within and archetypally built into life. That the world is in great danger and the human species can destroy itself. 
that there is immense urgency in recovering the soul, not only for individuals, but for our civilization. The list goes on and on. But the above is not simply a wish list or a statement of good ideas. Young's genius was not only to argue these points with great clarity, but to forge so many tools of practical help to achieve the reorientation necessary to achieve these ideas. In our next podcast, we continue by examining these in more detail. I hope you can join me.